Chapter Four of Xerxes by Jacob Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Preparations for the Invasion of Greece, B.C. 481. As soon as the invasion of Greece was finally decided upon, the orders were transmitted to all the provinces of the empire requiring the various authorities and powers to make the necessary preparations there were men to be levied arms to be manufactured ships to be built and stores of food to be provided the expenditures too of so vast an armament as xerxes was intending to organize would require a large supply of money for all these things xerxes relied on the revenues and the contributions of the provinces and orders very full and very imperative were transmitted accordingly to all the governors and satraps of asia and especially to those who ruled over the countries which lay near the western confines of the empire and consequently near the greek frontiers in modern times it is the practice of powerful nations to accumulate arms and munitions of war on storage in arsenals and naval depots so that the necessary supplies for very extended operations whether of attack or defense can be procured in a very short period of time in respect to funds too modern nations have a great advantage over those of former days in case of any sudden emergency arising to call for great and unusual expenditures in consequence of the vast accumulation of capital in the hands of private individuals and the confidence which is felt in the mercantile honor and good faith of most established governments at the present day these governments can procure indefinite supplies of gold and silver at any time by promising to pay an annual interest in lieu of the principal borrowed it is true that in these cases a stipulation is made by which the government may at a certain specified period pay back the principal and so extinguish the annuity but in respect to a vast portion of the amount so borrowed it is not expected that this repayment will ever be made the creditors in fact do not desire that it should be as owners of property always prefer a safe annual income from it to the custody of the principal and thus governments in good credit have sometimes induced their creditors to abate the rate of interest which they were receiving by threatening otherwise to pay the debt in full these inventions however by which a government in one generation may enjoy the pleasure and reap the glory of waging war and throw the burden of the expense on another were not known in ancient times xerxes did not understand the art of funding a national debt and there would besides have probably been very little confidence in persian stocks if any had been issued 
he had to raise all his funds by actual taxation and to have his arms and his ships and chariots of war manufactured express the food too to sustain the immense army which he was to raise was all to be produced and storehouses were to be built for the accumulation and custody of it all this as might naturally be expected would require time and the vastness of the scale on which these immense preparations were made is evinced by the fact that four years were the time allotted for completing them this period includes however a considerable time before the great debate on the subject described in the last chapter the chief scene of activity during all this time was the tract of country in the western part of asia minor and along the shores of the aegean sea taxes and contributions were raised from all parts of the empire but the actual material of war was furnished mainly from those provinces which were nearest to the future scene of it each district provided such things as it naturally and most easily produced one contributed horses another arms and ammunition another ships and another provisions the ships which were built were of various forms and modes of construction according to the purposes which they were respectively intended to serve some were strictly ships of war intended for actual combat others were transports their destination being simply the conveyance of troops or of military stores there were also a large number of vessels which were built on a peculiar model prescribed by the engineers being very long and straight-sided and smooth and flat upon their decks these were intended for the bridge across the hellspont they were made long so that when placed side by side across the stream a greater breadth might be given to the platform of the bridge all these things were very deliberately and carefully planned although it was generally on the asiatic side of the aegean sea that these vast works of preparation were going on and the crossing of the hellespont was to be the first great movement of the persian army the reader must not suppose that even at this time the european shores were wholly in the hands of the greeks the persians had long before conquered thrace and a part of macedon and thus the northern shores of the aegean sea and many of the islands were already in xerxes hands the greek dominions lay further south and xerxes did not anticipate any opposition from the enemy until his army after crossing the strait should have advanced to the neighborhood of athens in fact all the northern country through which his route would lie was already in his hands and in passing through it he anticipated no difficulties except as should arise from the elements themselves and the physical obstacles of the way the hellespont itself was of course one principal point of danger the difficulty here was to be surmounted 
by the bridge of boats there was however another point which was in some respects still more formidable it was the promontory of mount athos by looking at the map of greece placed at the commencement of the next chapter the reader will see that there are two or three singular promontories jutting out from the main land in the northwestern part of the aegean sea the most northerly and the largest of these was formed by an immense mountainous mass rising out of the water and connected by a narrow isthmus with the main land the highest summit of this rocky pile was called mount athos in ancient times and is so marked upon the map in modern days it is called mont santo or holy mountain being covered with monasteries and convents and other ecclesiastical establishments built in the middle ages mount athos is very celebrated in ancient history it extended along the promontory for many miles and terminated abruptly in lofty cliffs and precipices toward the sea where it was so high that its shadow as was said was thrown at sunset across the water to the island of lemnos a distance of twenty leagues it was a frightful spectre in the eyes of the ancient navigators when as they came coasting along from the north in their frail galleys on their voyages to greece and italy they saw it frowning defiance to them as they came with threatening clouds hanging upon its summit and the surges and surf of the aegean perpetually thundering upon its base below to make this stormy promontory the more terrible it was believed to be the haunt of innumerable uncouth and misshapen monsters of the sea that lived by devouring the hapless seamen who were thrown upon the rocks from their wrecked vessels by the merciless tumult of the waves the plan which xerxes had formed for the advance of his expedition was that the army which was to cross the hellespont by the bridge should advance thence through macedonia and thessaly by land attended by a squadron of ships transports and galleys which was to accompany the expedition along the coast by sea the men could be marched more conveniently to their place of destination by land the stores on the other hand the arms the supplies and the baggage of every description could be transported more easily by sea mardonius was somewhat solicitous in respect to the safety of the great squadron which would be required for this latter service in doubling the promontory of mount athos in fact he had special and personal reason for his solicitude for he had himself some years before met with a terrible disaster at this very spot it was during the reign of darius that this disaster occurred on one of the expeditions which darius had entrusted to his charge he was conducting a very large fleet along the coast when a sudden storm arose just as he was approaching this terrible promontory he was on the northern side of the promontory 
when the storm came on and as the wind was from the north it blew directly upon the shore for the fleet to make its escape from the impending danger it seemed necessary therefore to turn the course of the ships back against the wind but this on account of the sudden and terrific violence of the gale it was impossible to do the sails when they attempted to use them were blown away by the howling gusts and the oars were broken to pieces by the tremendous dashing of the sea it soon appeared that the only hope of escape for the squadron was to press on in the desperate attempt to double the promontory and thus gain if possible the sheltered water under its lee the galleys accordingly went on the pilots and the seamen exerting their utmost to keep them away from the shore all their efforts however to do this were vain the merciless gales drove the vessels one after another upon the rocks and dashed them to pieces while the raging sea wrenched the wretched mariners from the wrecks to which they attempted to cling and tossed them out into the boiling whirlpools around to the monsters that were ready there to devour them as if she were herself some ferocious monster feeding her offspring with their proper prey a few it is true of the hapless wretches succeeded in extricating themselves from the surf by crawling up upon the rocks through the tangled seaweed until they were above the reach of the surges but when they had done so they found themselves hopelessly imprisoned between the impending precipices which frowned above them and the frantic billows which were raging and roaring below they gained of course by their apparent escape only a brief prolongation of suffering for they all soon miserably perished from exhaustion exposure and cold mardonius had no desire to encounter this danger again now the promontory of mount athos though high and rocky itself was connected with the mainland by an isthmus level and low and not very broad xerxes determined on cutting a canal through this isthmus so as to take his fleet of galleys across the neck and thus avoid the stormy navigation of the outward passage such a canal would be of service not merely for the passage of the great fleet but for the constant communication which it would be necessary for xerxes to maintain with his own dominions during the whole period of the invasion it might have been expected that the greeks would have interfered to prevent the execution of such a work as this but it seems that they did not and yet there was a considerable greek population in that vicinity the promontory of athos itself was quite extensive being about thirty miles long and four or five wide and it had several towns upon it the canal which xerxes was to cut across the neck of this peninsula was to be wide enough for two triremes to pass each other triremes were galleys propelled 
by three banks of oars and were vessels of the largest class ordinarily employed and as the oars by which they were impelled required almost as great a breadth of water as the vessels themselves the canal was consequently to be very wide the engineers accordingly laid out the ground and marking the boundaries by stakes and lines as guides to the workmen the excavation was commenced immense numbers of men were set at work arranged regularly in gangs according to the various nations which furnished them as the excavation gradually proceeded and the trench began to grow deep they placed ladders against the sides and stationed a series of men upon them then the earth dug from the bottom was hauled up from one to another in a sort of basket or hod until it reached the top where it was taken by other men and conveyed away the work was very much interrupted and impeded in many parts of the line by the continual caving in of the banks on account of the workmen attempting to dig perpendicularly down in one section the one which had been assigned to the phoenicians this difficulty did not occur for the phoenicians more considerate than the rest had taken the precaution to make the breadth of their part of the trench twice as great at the top as it was below by this means the banks on each side were formed to a gradual slope and consequently stood firm the canal was at length completed and the water was let in north of the promontory of mount athos the reader will find upon the map the river strymon flowing south not far from the boundary between macedon and thrace into the aegean sea the army of xerxes in its march from the hellespont would of course have to cross this river and xerxes having by cutting the canal across the isthmus of mount athos removed an obstacle in the way of his fleet resolved next to facilitate the progress of his army by bridging the strymon the king also ordered a great number of granaries and storehouses to be built at various points along the route which it was intended that his army should pursue some of these were on the coasts of macedonia and thrace and some on the banks of the strymon to these magazines the corn raised in asia for the use of the expedition was conveyed from time to time in transport ships as fast as it was ready and being safely deposited was protected by a guard no very extraordinary means of defence seems to have been thought necessary at these points for although the scene of all these preliminary arrangements was on the european side of the line and in what was called greek territory still this part of the country had been long under persian dominion the independent states and cities of greece were all further south and the people who inhabited them did not seem disposed to interrupt these preparations perhaps they were not aware to what object and end all these formidable movements on their northern frontier were tending 
Xerxes, during all this time, had remained in Persia. The period at length arrived when his preparations on the frontiers being far advanced toward completion, he concluded to move forward at the head of his forces to Sardis. Sardis was the great capital of the western part of his dominions, and was situated not far from the frontier. He accordingly assembled his forces, and taking leave of his capital of Susa, with much parade and many ceremonies, he advanced toward Asia Minor. Entering and traversing Asia Minor, he crossed the Halys, which had been in former times the western boundary of the empire, though its limits had now been extended very far beyond. Having crossed the Halys, the immense procession advanced into Phrygia. A very romantic tale is told of an interview between Xerxes and a certain nobleman named Pythias, who resided in one of the Phrygian towns. The circumstances were these. After crossing the Halys, which river flows north into the Euxine Sea, the army went on to the westward through nearly the whole extent of Phrygia, until at length they came to the sources of the streams which flowed west into the Aegean Sea. One of the most remarkable of these rivers was the Meander. There was a town built exactly at the source of the Meander, so exactly, in fact, that the fountain from which the stream took its rise was situated in the public square of the town, walled in and ornamented like an artificial fountain in a modern city. The name of this town was Selene. When the army reached Selene and encamped there, Pythias made a great entertainment for the officers, which, as the number was very large, was of course attended with an enormous expense. Not satisfied with this, Pythias sent word to the king that if he was in any respect in want of funds for his approaching campaign, he, Pythias, would take great pleasure in supplying him. Xerxes was surprised at such proofs of wealth and munificence from a man in comparatively a private station. He inquired of his attendants who Pythias was. They replied that, next to Xerxes himself, he was the richest man in the world. They said, moreover, that he was as generous as he was rich. He had made Darius a present of a beautiful model of a fruit tree and of a vine of solid gold. He was by birth, they added, a Lydian. Lydia was west of Phrygia and was famous for its wealth. The river Pactolus, which was so celebrated for its golden sands, flowed through the country, and as the princes and nobles contrived to monopolize the treasures which were found, both in the river itself and in the mountains from which it flowed, some of them became immensely wealthy. Xerxes was astonished at the accounts which he heard of Pythias's fortune. He sent for him and asked him what was the amount of his treasures. This was rather an ominous question, for under such despotic governments as those of the Persian kings, the only real safeguard of wealth was often the concealment of it. 
inquiry on the part of a government in respect to treasures accumulated by a subject was often only a preliminary to the seizure and confiscation of them pythias however in reply to the king's question said that he had no hesitation in giving his majesty full information in respect to his fortune he had been making he said a careful calculation of the amount of it with a view of determining how much he could offer to contribute in aid of the persian campaign he found he said that he had two thousand talents of silver and four millions wanting seven thousand of staters of gold the stator was a persian coin even if we knew at the present day its exact value we could not determine the precise amount denoted by the sum which pythias named the value of money being subject to such vast fluctuations in different ages of the world scholars who have taken an interest in inquiring into such points as these have come to the conclusion that the amount of gold and silver coin which pythias thus reported to xerxes was equal to about thirty millions of dollars pythias added after stating the amount of the gold and silver which he had at command that it was all at the service of the king for the purpose of carrying on the war he had he said besides his money slaves and farms enough for his own maintenance xerxes was extremely gratified at this generosity and at the proof which it afforded of the interest which pythias felt in the cause of the king you are the only man said he who has offered hospitality to me or to my army since i set out upon this march and in addition to your hospitality you tender me your whole fortune i will not however deprive you of your treasure i will on the contrary order my treasurer to pay to you the seven thousand staters necessary to make your four millions complete i offer you also my friendship and will do anything in my power now and hereafter to serve you continue to live in the enjoyment of your fortune if you always act under the influence of the noble and generous impulses which govern you now you will never cease to be prosperous and happy if we could end the account of pythias and xerxes here what generous and noble-minded men we might suppose them to be but alas how large a portion of the apparent generosity and nobleness which shows itself among potentates and kings turns into selfishness and hypocrisy when closely examined pythias was one of the most merciless tyrants that ever lived he held all the people that lived upon his vast estates in a condition of abject slavery compelling them to toil continually in his mines in destitution and wretchedness in order to add more and more to his treasures the people came to his wife with their bitter complaints she pitied them but could not relieve them one day it is said that in order to show her husband 
the vanity and folly of living only to amass silver and gold and to convince him how little real power such treasures have to satisfy the wants of the human soul she made him a great entertainment in which there was a boundless profusion of wealth in the way of vessels and furniture of silver and gold but scarcely any food there was everything to satisfy the eye with the sight of magnificence but nothing to satisfy hunger the noble guest sat starving in the midst of a scene of unexampled riches and splendor because it was not possible to eat silver and gold and as for xerxes's professions of gratitude and friendship for pythias they were put to the test a short time after the transactions which we have above described in a remarkable manner pythias had five sons they were all in xerxes's army by their departure on the distant and dangerous expedition on which xerxes was to lead them their father would be left alone pythias under these circumstances resolved to venture so far on the sincerity of his sovereign's professions of regard as to request permission to retain one of his sons at home with his father on condition of freely giving up the rest xerxes on hearing this proposal was greatly enraged how dare you said he come to me with such a demand you and all that pertain to you are my slaves and are bound to do my bidding without a murmur you deserve the severest punishment for such an insolent request in consideration however of your past good behavior i will not inflict upon you what you deserve i will only kill one of your sons the one that you seem to cling to so fondly i will spare the rest so saying the enraged king ordered the son whom pythias had endeavored to retain to be slain before his eyes and then directed that the dead body should be split in two and the two halves thrown the one on the right side of the road and the other on the left that his army as he said might march between them on leaving phrygia the army moved on toward the west their immediate destination as has already been said was sardis where they were to remain until the ensuing spring the historian mentions a number of objects of interest which attracted the attention of xerxes and his officers on this march which mark the geographical peculiarities of the country or illustrate in some degree the ideas and manners of the times there was one town for example situated not like selene where a river had its origin but where one disappeared the stream was a branch of the meander it came down from the mountains like any other mountain torrent and then at the town in question it plunged suddenly down into a gulf or chasm and disappeared it rose again at a considerable distance below and thence flowed on without any further evasions to the meander on the confines between phrygia and lydia the army came to a place where the road divided 
one branch turned toward the north and led to lydia the other inclined to the south and conducted to caria here too on the frontier was a monument which had been erected by croesus the great king of lydia who lived in cyrus's day to mark the eastern boundaries of his kingdom the persians were of course much interested in looking upon this ancient landmark which designated not only the eastern limit of croesus's empire but also what was in ancient times the western limit of their own there was a certain species of tree which grew in these countries called the plane tree xerxes found one of these trees so large and beautiful that it attracted his special admiration he took possession of it in his own name and adorned it with golden chains and set a guard over it this idolization of a tree was a striking instance of the childish caprice and folly by which the actions of the ancient despots were so often governed as the army advanced they came to other places of interest and objects of curiosity and wonder there was a district where the people made a sort of artificial honey from grain and a lake from which the inhabitants procured salt by evaporation and mines too of silver and of gold these objects interested and amused the minds of the persians as they moved along without however at all retarding or interrupting their progress in due time they reached the great city of sardis in safety and here xerxes established his headquarters and awaited the coming of spring in the meantime however he sent heralds into greece to summon the country to surrender to him this is a common formality when an army is about to attack either a town a castle or a kingdom xerxes's heralds crossed the aegean sea and made their demands in xerxes name upon the greek authorities as might have been expected the embassage was fruitless and the heralds returned bringing with them from the greeks not acts or proffers of submission but stern expressions of hostility and defiance nothing of course now remained but that both parties should prepare for the impending crisis End of chapter four